Welcome to ParCast Crime Bites. We wanted to give our listeners some additional content to help them dive even deeper into the true crime world. Every week, in addition to your normal Crimes of Passion episode, we're exploring the most fascinating true crime themes covered across the ParCast network. We've collected short clips from some of our most popular ParCast originals to help us explore ideas like motivation, method, and madness, and show how interconnected the true crime world really is. You can find the original episodes of these for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. A list of episodes that we used will be posted in the episode description. Today, we're discussing cases of psychological manipulation. What tactics do criminals use to deceive, coerce, and exert control over their victims? Why does it work? And most importantly, what are the dangerous consequences of these types of mental domination? Psychiatrist Harvey St. Clair defined psychological manipulation as a psychosocial maneuver which uses aggressiveness, cleverness, and deception to influence others so they will give gratification to the aggressor. This gratification, whether that be in taking a hostage, cultivating followers, or seducing a murder victim, is the driving force behind a criminal's manipulative actions. They desire to gain absolute control over their prey. Psychologist George Simon identified many tactics manipulators use to dominate their victims, such as intense flattery, playing the victim to gain sympathy, and undermining a victim's perception of reality through gaslighting. So who do manipulators target? How do they select the right person to fall prey to their scheme? Dr. Harriet Breaker identified the most common traits victims of manipulation possess. Among them are an eagerness to please, low self-reliance, a desire to earn acceptance, a blurry sense of identity, and a fear of disapproval. In our clips today, we'll walk through a variety of criminal manipulators and see how they identify these traits in their victims. We'll start with a clip from ParCast original Crimes of Passion, covering one of the most well-known cases of manipulation in true crime history, the Manson family. By manipulating in-group and out-group dynamics in the late 1960s, murderer and cult leader Charles Manson radicalized his followers and cultivated an intense devotion that propelled the family to do his bidding. While the most famous killings committed by the Manson family were the Tate-LaBianca murders in August of 1969, their first victim was drug dealer Gary Hinman. Hinman's murder was the catalyst for a string of brutal killings carried out by the Manson family in the summer of 69. In July of 1969, Charles learned that the two men were in the midst of an argument. Bobby Beausoleil had purchased a thousand tabs of mescaline from Gary Hinman, but he then claimed that the drugs were tainted. Bobby wanted his money back. Charles figured that as long as Bobby was asking for a refund, he should demand some extra cash to help fund the family's cause. In exchange, Charles sent over a few family members to Hinman's house to put pressure on him. Charles knew that Henman was particularly attracted to Manson family member Ella Jo Bailey, so he suggested she go along to help persuade Henman. But Ella Jo asked to be excused from duty. Perhaps she guessed that the visit might become violent. 
She later said that she witnessed the family members arguing over which guns and weapons they would bring to Henman's apartment. Instead, Charles sent family members Bruce Davis, Susan Atkins, and Mary Bruner to act as enforcers. They held the drug dealer up at gunpoint, while the spur and Bobby Beausoleil beat him senseless. Eventually, Henman agreed to sign over the pink slips to his two vehicles as payment. But when Bobby called Charles to let him know, he wasn't satisfied. He was sure Henman must have money stashed away. For the next two days, Bobby, Mary Brunner, and Susan Atkins held Gary Henman hostage in his home. They continued to make demands for money while Bobby relentlessly beat him. When Henman told them he'd go to the police, Bobby was spooked. He might go to prison for what he'd done. He called Charles, who said, you know what to do. Bobby took that as a command to silence Henman by killing him. Before I continue with Bobby's psychology, please note that I am not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. The American Psychological Association has expressed skepticism that people can be brainwashed into acting violently. But some psychologists point to countless examples of people falling under a violent cult influence and going on to do the unthinkable. Licensed mental health counselor Stephen Hassan used the rise of Al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups as modern examples of how people can be indoctrinated into committing murder. These extremist groups have radicalized individuals through isolation, limiting access to outside information, and instilling an us-versus-them mentality. Charles Manson uses same tactics. Family members looked to Charles as their only source of wisdom and guidance. Some even thought he was the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. Charles exploited their trust to make them believe they had to take a stand against the rich and powerful pigs of the outside world. The family wasn't just willing to kill for their God, Charles. They were proud to do it. So when Charles gave the word, Bobby readily obeyed. He stabbed Henman, then dipped his hand in the dying man's blood to draw on the wall. He wrote, political piggy, and then painted a paw print. Charles had instructed Bobby to leave evidence incriminating the Black Panthers. He hoped Henman's death would heighten racial tensions and help kick off Helter Skelter. Then the group left, taking Henman's cars with them. In this episode covering the Manson family, Gary Hinman's murder was only the first in a series of killings. Soon after, the family slaughtered actress Sharon Tate and eight other innocent people, all in a bid to kickstart Manson's prophesied race wars. But Manson's use of fear and violence was in opposition to many other criminals of the hippie era. Instead, they capitalized on the prevailing philosophy of peace and love. In this next clip from Cults, we examine one of the most iconic psychedelic cults of the 1970s, the Source Family. Unlike Charles Manson, the Source Family's charismatic leader, Jim Baker, relied on ideas like enlightenment and free love to bind his disciples to him. Like Manson, Baker was at the center of the Source Family. But instead of acting as a warrior, he became their spiritual father, 
offering them love and wisdom in exchange for their loyalty. Ultimately, however, this manipulation created an all-consuming dynamic of extreme dependency between Baker and his disciples. What appeared to be a mutually beneficial relationship was actually in the service of Baker's growing ego. Jim Baker typically responded to complex problems by running away from them, but this time he didn't cut and run. This could be because, as psychoanalyst Daniel Shaw points out in his book, Traumatic Narcissism, Relational Systems of Subjugation, as a cult leader, Baker had developed a codependent relationship with his followers. Shaw writes, quote, The power that parents have as godlike figures to literally give life and sustain the lives of their children leaves each human being with the memory of total dependency. Cult leaders tap into and reactivate this piece of the human psyche. Followers are encouraged to become regressed and infantilized, to believe that their life depends on pleasing the cult leader." End quote. And just as much as the Source family members needed Baker, he apparently needed them. According to Shaw, the cult leader does not escape dependency. Instead, he, and also in many cases, she, comes to depend on his followers to worship and adore him, to reflect his narcissistic delusion of perfection. In March of 1973, the 51-year-old Baker managed to find a second home for his followers, which they called the Father House, a three-bedroom, three-bathroom home in the hills near the Source restaurant. It was significantly smaller than the Mother House, a fact that would soon lead to deadly health risks. In some ways, life at the father house went on just as it had at the mother house. Business at the source was still booming, and it still required a few dozen family members to run it each day. Everyone still gathered for 4 a.m. meditation and spent much of the day cleaning while seeking enlightenment. But in other ways, everything changed. Baker began channeling new beliefs constantly, with an ever-expanding emphasis on his own power. He began calling himself by the Jewish name for God, Yehovah. He taught about the Freemasons and ancient Egyptian magic. For his followers, the pursuit of enlightenment became like a whirlwind game in which no one knew the rules. In our episodes on The Source Family, we go on to examine how Jim Baker's total control over his followers only increased over the next two years. Eventually, their numbers surged to over 150 people. But when a run-in with the authorities in Los Angeles forced the cult to flee to Hawaii, Baker, or Father Yod, met his end in a fatal hang-gliding accident in 1975. For some, it was a death as glorious as Baker's life. But for others, it was a shocking wake-up call. They realized that, for years, Baker had manipulated them, believing he was guiding them to total enlightenment. And in turn, his followers had blindly obeyed his every whim. But what happens when a criminal deludes themselves into believing that their heinous actions are truly in the best interest of their victim? Coming up, we discuss the horrifying kidnapping case of Katie Beers and explore the power of self-manipulation. From the violence and separatist mentality of the Manson family to the all-consuming codependent dynamic of the Source family, 
criminals have relied on a variety of tactics to exert control over their victims. But perhaps the most fascinating method of manipulation is one the criminal uses on themselves, denial and self-delusion. In our next clip from our show Hostage, we cover one of the most twisted cases of self-delusion, the abduction of Katie Beers. Kidnapped in 1992, nine-year-old Katie was kept in an underground bunker, chained to the wall, where she suffered sexual abuse at the hands of her neighbor, John Esposito, or Big John. But unlike Charles Manson or Jim Baker, Esposito committed his crimes out of the belief that he was helping his victim. Katie came from an abusive home, so Esposito convinced himself that showering her with gifts and affection would make Katie happy and feel loved. In Esposito's mind, he had rescued Katie from her neglectful family, and it was giving her the care and attention she deserved. But in reality, he had trapped her in a literal hell on earth. Sometimes Big John would come into the bunker to give Katie food or a toy, and then suddenly, the blank look would appear on his face, and he would rape her. One clue about Big John's mental state is how long he remained in denial about sexually abusing Katie. It took more than 20 years for Big John to admit he molested Katie, and even then, he denied raping her. If Big John really believed he loved children, it would have been hard for him to reconcile that with the obvious evidence he was seriously harming Katie, which could lead to denial, a psychological coping mechanism. On the other hand, when John Esposito did finally confess, he blamed his lawyers for telling him not to admit to touching Katie. There is one explanation that falls somewhere between extreme denial and willful cruelty. Catherine Ramsland, Ph.D., co-author of the book Inside the Minds of Sexual Predators, says one of the most common types of child predators is the, quote, fixated child offender. Fixated child offenders are stuck at an early stage of psychosexual development and rationalize away their abuse of children as showing affection. They may know their actions are wrong, but their fixation on children overrides their moral sensibilities. So John might have known he was hurting Katie, but because he was fixated and felt unable to stop, he tried to convince himself he was actually helping her. Big John's grand gestures, like the promise of a car and a huge amount of money on her 18th birthday, seem like further rationalizations of this abuse. He was able to convince himself that kidnapping and sexual abuse were actually a net benefit to his victim. Big John had molested children before, and in those cases too, he cast himself as a helpful male role model in their lives. Among John Esposito's victims, Katie's 16-year-old maternal half-brother, John Beers. Hostage victim Katie Beers survived for 17 days in John Esposito's bunker. Throughout her captivity, while he tried to manipulate her into forgiving him for kidnapping her, she used a variety of tactics to convince Esposito to let her go. She pleaded with him. If he really loved her, he'd let her leave, grow up, go to college, and have a family. Eventually, Esposito turned himself into the police though it's unclear if he was motivated by guilt over his actions or fear of being caught. Either way, he led the police to the hidden bunker, freeing Katie. 
John Esposito demonstrated how criminals manipulate their victims while they already have them under their control. But how do they gain a potential victim's trust in the first place? In our next clip from Serial Killers, we'll examine the tactics of lust murderer Fritz Harmon, or the Werewolf of Hanover. Harmon killed at least 24 men from 1918 to 1924, all between the ages of 10 and 22. To lure his victims in, he sometimes offered them assistance or accommodations. Several of the young men he murdered were runaways. This made them especially vulnerable to Harmon's strategic kindness. He brought them home to his apartment, supplied them with food and drink. Then, once their guard was completely down, he savagely attacked them. After getting away clean for the second time, new confidence fueled Harmon's bloodlust. So when he met 17-year-old Wilhelm Schulze at Hanover Station in 1923, four weeks after killing Fritz Franke, he couldn't help but approach the boy. By now, Harmon had a practice routine for finding suitable victims. He often patrolled Hanover Station under the guise of a police officer searching for vulnerable boys. Schulze was a young writer who had just run away from home, and this made him an easy target for Harmon. Harmon had impersonated a police officer and pretended to lend a sympathetic ear to the boy's troubles. He offered Schulze a place to stay and a warm meal. Schulze eagerly accepted the offers and followed Harmon to his apartment. The room was small, but spotless. After nearly getting caught for the murder of Franca just weeks prior, Harmon had scrubbed every inch. In fact, he had been scrubbing the place with harsh chemicals so often that other tenants in the house had complained to the landlord, a widow named Elizabeth Engel. But Harmon had long ago explained to Engel that he was very particular about his cleaning habits, and she saw no reason to bother a tenant for keeping his room tidy. Besides, Harmon was charming. Engel liked him. His charm also allowed him to urge young boys like Schulze into his bed. Given his pleasant, friendly manner, Harmon was always able to get close to his victims without making them uncomfortable. In these situations, Harmon especially liked to ask his victims about their families. This line of questioning seemed reasonable coming from a police officer, but Harmon's true goal was anything but noble. He needed to know if anyone would come looking for the boy. According to Harmon, he didn't always feel a violent urge to kill the boys he brought back to his apartment. In some cases, Harmon kept young men around as errand boys for several days. He gave them small jobs or meals until they stopped coming around. Other times, he raped the boys but did not kill them. But unfortunately for Schulze, his answers made Harmon confident that no one would question his disappearance. Harmon pounced. He grabbed Schulze by the throat and held him down. He raped him, and in the midst of the attack, sunk his teeth into Schulze's Adam's apple. This episode of Serial Killers further details Fritz Harman's six-year reign of terror as the Butcher of Hanover. But during that time, the police couldn't help but notice the sharp spike in the number of missing boys and teenagers. His crimes were eventually uncovered when the bones from his victims started popping up around town in rivers and fields. When Harmon was arrested, police discovered stacks of young men's clothing in his apartment. 
After killing them, he sold off their possessions for extra cash. In the end, his thriftiness was his downfall. Every part of Fritz Harman's interaction with his victims served a purpose, from where he hunted, to how he approached them, to how he killed them. He was entirely calculated in his manipulations. But for some criminals, their actions aren't so nearly deliberate. Rather, their manipulations are encouraged by their own delusions. Our final clip from Female Criminals covers convicted murderer Diane Downs. Diane grew up in a strict religious household, feeling unloved. She searched for ways to fill that hole her entire life. She finally thought she found the one in Lou Lewison. They carried on a serious affair for the better part of 1982, but Lou was concerned by some of Diane's behavior. She needed his constant attention and affection. She also lied about everything, spinning whatever stories necessary to keep him close to her. Eventually, he broke off the affair and went back to his wife. Diane was devastated. So in May of 1983, she devised a plan to win Lou back. If she made herself a victim, he would have to come back to her to save her. Sadly, she involved her three young children in the plot, making them victims as well. One night, Diane took the kids out for a drive. Then, she staged a violent carjacking. On the night of the shooting, May 19, 1983, Detective Doug Welch interviewed Diane at Mackenzie Willamette Hospital. Welch was the responding officer that night, and this was his first homicide case. Diane told Welch that she and her children had gone to visit her friend in Marcola, a nearby town in Oregon. On their way home, she decided to take a longer route that was more scenic, even though it was growing dark. As she drove her three sleeping children down Old Mohawk Road, a deserted country road near the Mohawk River, a shaggy-haired man flagged her down, making her stop the car. Diane got out to ask what he wanted, and he demanded she give him her keys. When she refused, the man snapped, pushed her to the side, reached into the car, and shot the sleeping children. Diane then pretended to throw her car keys in the direction of the riverbank to divert the gunman's attention. They struggled for a moment, and he shot her in the arm, but she managed to get back in the car and race away to the hospital. Parts of the story didn't make sense to Welch. He said, quote, sightseeing when it's pitch blackout? And why are the kids fatally or near-fatally wounded, and she, being right-handed, is shot in the left arm? I mean, think about it. She's the biggest threat to him not three sleeping children, end quote. In addition, Diane's account of the events on Mohawk Road were inconsistent. She told Welch the man was bushy-haired, then said that he wore a ski mask. First, she said that they were attacked by one man, but then she said there had been two, then reverted back to one. Her evolving narrative is consistent with pathological lying, a common symptom in those diagnosed with histrionic personality disorder, like Diane. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Sammy. 
According to Dr. Mark D. Griffiths, patients with HPD will often lie as a way to enhance or facilitate their dramatic and attention-seeking behavior. In this case, with the dozens of police and doctors in the hospital focused on her, Diane adjusted her story to appear more dramatic as needed. While Welch took Diane's statement, doctors fought to save the three Downs children. As we further outlined in the female criminals episodes detailing Diane Downs' story, she had a long history of pathological lying, though her previous lies never had such high stakes. Now, with her children's lives on the line, Diane constructed an elaborate carjacking story to explain their grave injuries. However, her attempts to manipulate investigators and her increasing desire for their attention exposed her increasingly convoluted delusions. Ultimately, one of Diane Downs' children died from their injuries. The other two spent months in the hospital recovering. Her three-year-old son was paralyzed from the waist down. Her oldest daughter, Christy, initially lost the ability to speak, but when she recovered, it was her testimony at Diane's trial that sent her mother to prison for life. While the criminals in our clips today utilized different manipulation tactics, they all shared one common goal, to gain control over their victims. We saw Dr. Simon's manipulation tactics at play. Diane Downs tried to make herself into a victim to manipulate police and her ex-boyfriend. John Esposito tried to use intense flattery to win Katie Beer's affection, even deceiving himself into believing he was saving her. We also saw that these manipulators chose their victims very carefully, paying attention to those who are most vulnerable, as laid out by Dr. Breaker. John Esposito's victim was not only a child, but an abused child who desired the approval of adults. Many of Fritz Harmon's victims were runaways, vulnerable to any small amount of kindness he showed them. Jim Baker offered identity and acceptance to his followers, who looked to Baker for guidance and enlightenment. In the end, they all achieved their goal of complete domination. Thanks for tuning into ParCast Crime Bites. We hope you enjoyed this episode on the tactics of psychological manipulation. We'll be back next week with a new episode on mothers misbehaving. We often think of mothers as the consummate nurturers. Why do they sometimes hurt the ones they love most, even their own children? If you'd like to listen to the episodes we discussed today in full, simply search for our ParCast original shows, Crimes of Passion, Cults, Hostage, Serial Killers, or Female Criminals on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next time. <laughs>